invite you to give your attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Exodus 31, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiav, the son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and he was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Pray that our hearts would be inclined to honor your word. We can only do that because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He has redeemed us. He has helped us. Lord Jesus, you are our rest. As we come to this passage, we're thankful that your word has been kept for us not only in the person and work of Jesus, but also in the record of Holy Scripture. And Father, we come to you with a desire for your word not to be burdensome, but rather for it to be life, to be life-giving, to be refreshing for our souls. So bless your people this day. Help them, give them spiritual understanding and help me, your servant. God, protect me from error. Help me to speak with grace and truth. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. In the mid-1800s, there was a British explorer who was also a missionary to Africa, and he had set out on a journey to the rainforests of the Congo Basin. 
And to help him on his way, he did what you would do. He hired what was called porters, people to help him, uh, indigenous folks to help him. They were to carry his supplies and help him navigate because they often knew some paths that may not be clear. The first day, it was awesome, right? It was awesome, very exciting. He saw things he never thought his eyes would behold, but it was also exhausting. They traveled all day on foot. And then at night, he didn't sleep very well because it's really hard to sleep, especially in a foreign rainforest like this. But he woke up that second day and he was ready. He was ready to press on and see what was before him. But his porters, whom he had hired to go with him, they weren't budging. They refused to go. You can imagine this explorer was exasperated, so he did what we would do. He began to cajole them a little bit. That didn't work, so he did what's very common in Africa. He began to bribe them, right? I'll pay you more if you go with me. Come on, let's go. They still wouldn't budge. And then he began to plead with them, to beg with them. Come on, please, I need to do this. But nothing worked, nothing worked. These guys would not move one inch. So finally he asked them, why do you refuse to go? Why do you not move? Their answer was, sir, we are too exhausted. It is time to rest. We're waiting for our souls to catch up to our bodies. We're waiting for our souls to catch up to our bodies. How many of you have ever been that exhausted? Have you ever been that exhausted? Maybe today you feel that exhausted. How many of you feel just a little bit like I'm waiting on my soul to catch up with my body? I wouldn't be surprised. I feel that way often. The whirling rush of life, as many of us know it today, often leaves us with a lack of a critical balance. It leaves us lacking a critical balance that we desperately need. We work hard, right? Hopefully. We play hard. We busy ourselves with not just a million, but a million and one tasks. We run from here to there. We engage our bodies and our minds in both productive and, can't find it, where's my phone? Not so productive, at least always, pursuits. And where does that leave us? Exhausted, right? It leaves us exhausted physically. It leaves us exhausted mentally. It leaves us exhausted spiritually. I'm thankful that God's word addresses this exhaustion. And God's word does so by calling us to strive for balance, a divine balance between work and rest, work and rest. This morning in Exodus chapter 31, we get not only a picture of this balance, but we get a reminder of God's prescription for us to achieve this balance. For God wants us to work but God wants us to rest. God has designed us for both. God has put both work and rest into our hearts. I'll say it this way, God blesses both our service and our Sabbath. God blesses our work and our rest. Our time in this chapter this morning is just gonna follow a simple two-point outline. I'll give you the points up front so you know where we're going. The first is the gift of work. First, we'll look at the gift of work. Second, we'll look at the gift of rest. You get the hint? 
They're both gifts. The gift of rest. So first, the gift of work. Second, the gift of rest. We'll begin by looking at verses 1 through 11. And let's consider the gift of work. God has gone to great length to design his tabernacle. We've seen the details of this design over the last couple of weeks. We've considered chapters 25 through 30. Remember from the threads of the curtains to the threads of the priestly garments, from the golden overlay on the ark and other furniture to those engraved stones that were there on the priestly ephod, each and every detail has been considered and designed. Each detail is designed like a a master architect. God has designed every single detail. But I want you to notice from this passage that God is not just the grand architect of his tabernacle. He's also the grand contractor. Because he's not only devised the plan and and then just pass it off to whoever can bid for the job. Notice that he's also going to supervise the execution of that plan. We see this clearly here in our text. Look what he does. We're told that God has raised up a man from the very big tribe of Judah named Bezalel to oversee the project. This is gonna be his project manager. And as an assistant, God has appointed to him a man named Aholiab from the smaller tribe of Dan. But that's not all. Did you catch verse six? Look what it says. God gives ability to all able men that they may make all that God has commanded them. God has raised up the workers. He's raised up the workers to carry out all of his plans. How's he gonna do that? It's clear, right? Look at verse three. God does it by his spirit. God does it by his Holy Spirit. We see here that the spirit gives three distinct gifts right here in this text. Notice ability is mentioned. The Spirit gifts ability. The Spirit gifts what is called here intelligence with knowledge. We could sum that up with wisdom, right? That's wisdom. So ability, wisdom, and notice craftsmanship. Craftsmanship. Furthermore, if you turn ahead to the details of the project, actually be completed. These chapters were rough. They get repeated again after the golden calf incident. So it's like, here's how to do it. And then here's how it all gets done. But if you go through those chapters, particularly if you wanna look at 3942, look what it says. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. So according to what God said, they actually do it. They do all the work. The people had worked obediently. That's the focus there. They had done it faithfully, obediently. This obedience is also a gift of the Spirit. It's a gift of God, is it not? I mean, where does any faithfulness or obedience come from? Do we muster it up on our own because we're somehow good enough to do that? No, it's supernatural, right? It's a spiritual gift. So again, let me summarize. God, by his Holy Spirit, calls and gifts people with abilities, with wisdom, with craftsmanship, and with obedience. God appoints them to work, he gifts them for the work, and then he carries them through the work. Not only did he design it, but he oversees its implementation. There's a lot to learn today from then. There's a lot to look at today and see the same thing as it was then. God continues to gift his people 
with a vast array of abilities, an immense ocean of wisdom, a beautiful diversity of craftsmanship. And of course, God still gives a steady supply of supernatural obedience. I mean, look around the room. Take a look around the room. Think of the various callings and giftings that are represented here. That's a real testimony to even today, to the truth of that reality. The spirit of God is certainly active in each and every one of you. And while you may not feel your gift is very valuable or particularly useful, when you see it the way the Bible speaks of it, it's what? It's a gift. It's a gift. It's been given to you by the best giver of gifts, by God himself, by his very spirit. And so no matter how we may feel about the various gifts that we've been given, I'm not just talking about what we call spiritual gifts. I'm talking vocation, gifts, abilities, right? All of this, no matter how we may feel about it, it's valuable. It's valuable because God gave it to you. God designed you and gave it to you. I want you to use it for his kingdom. From the greatest to the least, all of God's gifts are to be used in his kingdom for his glory and for the good of the kingdom. Now, we're not called today to work on building God's tabernacle as the people of Israel were. Um, We're not called to build that tabernacle right now. But we are called to participate in the building of God's kingdom here on earth. I can't help but think of Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. If you would turn there with me, some of the same language is reflected there of God being the one doing the work and using us in and through it. I'll just read 19 through 22 of Ephesians chapter two. Speaking of what has been accomplished in Christ, the apostle Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, as God's people, as God's people, we are a dwelling place for God. We are the tabernacle. And though we may work in various callings and work in various ways, all of that work is kingdom work. God uses all of our vocations from the blessed calling to care for our home and our children to the just as blessed callings of construction or education or sanitation or engineering. And I'm gonna stop there because if I try to name them all, I'll leave some out, okay? But you get it, right? All of our callings right? All of our godly callings, God uses them to build up his kingdom. Why? Because did you realize this? Where you go, his kingdom goes. Where you go, if you're going to go to work tomorrow morning, I'll go to work for the church tomorrow morning, right? I'm not the only one who takes the kingdom with them. You realize you take the kingdom with you wherever you go, even if you don't leave your house and you're tending to your home and your children, you take the kingdom with you. How do I know that? Well, Jesus is the light of the world. And then he says what, Matthew 5? You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We carry that light, the light of Christ, wherever we go. I'm reminded of a couple of years ago when we were, were building our home, and I make it sound like I did the building. That's not true. 
a great contractor did that. But I still had to sit down and make some decisions, right? And I remember having to sit down, and of course it was right at the beginning of the pandemic of 2020. So I had to meet with the electrician over Zoom and he gets putting up all these things. He's like, well, this is what your house comes with. Here's where the lights are. Here's where the outlets are and all that. Now you tell me what else you want. I didn't really think that much about it because if you don't know already, I don't think much about that at all. <laughs> that's, that's not my gift, okay? And so I remember looking, well, where will we want light where there may not be light? What probably should have been like a one-hour meeting took like three and a half because we're like, well, wait, wait, do we want this? Do we want that? And, oh, you'll do that, but I have a friend named Mario who may come and put a light in here for me or it was a lot, but all I knew is that there were places of darkness and I wanted light to go in there. I'm a poor representation of the king of this kingdom. He knows where he wants his light to go. He's not confused by any diagrams because he's the one who's decreed it all. And he says, I want my light to go here. And so he sends us into those places in a much greater way. He knows where he wants his light to go and he sends his light into there. So he's drawn up his plans. His eternal decrees are set and he's gifted and he's called you to work for him just as he's designed. Not only designed you, but designed where he wants it to go. And in these verses, 31, one through 11, they're given to us to remind us that God uses us. He uses us to carry out his kingdom plans, to carry out his design faithfully and obediently, only because he's the one who carries us through. So there you go. We've seen God has designed our work. God has appointed us to work. He's gifted us for the work and he carries us through the work. It's a gift. Work is a gift. But how does God address the exhaustion? How does God address the exhaustion? The very real and very tangible, physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion that so naturally accompanies our work and our service. How does God provide a way for our souls to catch up with our bodies? Well, the answer is found in 12 through 18. It's right there, right in front of us. It's our second point this morning. God gives us a gift of rest. God makes it abundantly clear that he wants his people to rest from their labors on the Sabbath day. This is actually pretty important for the immediate time, right? God makes it clear. He puts this prohibition to the Sabbath here for the building of the tabernacle, right? I don't want you to build this. I don't want you to do it quicker. You're still gonna honor the commandment. You're gonna rest. Anyone who doesn't do that will be put to death, right? That's how serious he is in relationship to the building of the tabernacle, right? But the, the whole point still carries through. God wants his people to work and rest. He makes it clear he wants them to rest and he's given them an entire day to rest. He gifts them for the work, he appoints them for the work, but he forbids them from doing it on the Sabbath day. You see, they're not to forsake one commandment given for righteousness. This has already been stated, right, in the scriptures. This is the fourth commandment. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy right? The fourth commandment. They're not to forsake that commandment given for righteousness so they can go and do something else that appears righteous too, right? I can go ahead and work on the tabernacle. Wouldn't that be great? Let's impress God. Let's impress him and build it faster. No, don't trade this righteousness for that righteousness. The Sabbath day is for you. Rest. They're to rest. So God gives them not a suggestion, but a prescription. 
He gives them a prescription of rest. It's a divine prescription, not a divine suggestion. Why can I call it a prescription? Well, because it's been codified in both creation and in the law. Remember Genesis 1 and 2? We read that God created the world in the span of six days, and then he did what on the seventh day? He rested. This principle is repeated. If you go to the giving of the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, 11, why do we have to keep the Sabbath? Because God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. And again, right here in verse 17, let's read it again. This is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and he was refreshed. It's interesting, this word refreshed. It isn't used other places, but it's used here. Man, this is good. God rested and he was refreshed. And you might be thinking, how can the omnipotent God, right? The all-powerful God, the one who never lacks any power, why would he, why, he can't run out of energy. Why would he need to rest? Well, because he was showing us what is good and righteous and holy. We could see in God the blessing of the renewing and refreshing power that accompanies rest. God patterned it for us in creation. God gave it to us in the moral law, which never goes away. And he calls us to embrace it now because it's what's best for us. So written in creation and in God's moral law, one of the Ten Commandments is a prescription for rest. But I think you can see it's a prescription even more when we consider its priority. Look at verse 13. The words above all. Above all. Some of you may be familiar with Matthew Henry. He's a Puritan commentator. Uh, he makes the comment that uh, by these words, God is assigning the Sabbath rest as what he calls the hymn and the hedge of all the law and all the worship. What he's saying is that beyond what we do for God and how we choose to honor God in our worship, this setting aside of the Sabbath day will define what we as his followers treasure above all else. In other words, do we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our rest? That's how Matthew Henry worded it. And I agree with him. I'd point to something else in the text that adds even more prescriptive priority of the Sabbath. Look at verse 13. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And look at verse 16 and 17. Therefore, the people of Israel, by the way, in new covenant reality, the church is Israel, right? The church is God's people, shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Not just until the new, but forever. It is a sign forever between me and my people, the people of Israel. You see, the Sabbath is a sign it's a sign. God says it's a sign, and it points to an even greater reality. Think about it, okay? You're driving, and you come up on a stop sign. What are you supposed to do? Now, most of you in here, because you're old enough, and, and you're probably a really good driver, immediately you saw in your head a stop sign, right? An octagon. It's red, mostly, right? It's outlined in white. 
And there's four letters, not doesn't say maybe, okay? Four letters in white, real big, stop. You see that, what do you do? Well, what should you do? You stop, right? But is that all? Are you just supposed to stop? No, I stopped, now I'm gonna go. Well, no, you, you actually start processing information in your head, don't you? Is this a two-way stop or a four-way stop? Is there a sign that says cross traffic doesn't stop? If it doesn't, do, do I look both ways, right? Is it safe? Does it say no turn on red? Uh, excuse me, no turn on stop. What does it say? And then what happens if I get there at the same time as someone else? <gasps> Wait, the person on the right gets to go. But you know, you go through this whole system because of one sign. You go through this whole system of thinking. A longer list of realities are pointed to in just that one simple metal sign. In a greater way, the Sabbath day points to the blessed covenant relationship that we have with God and the provision he's given us so that we can care for our bodies and care for our minds and care for our souls. The Sabbath day is a gift and it's a gift of high priority because it allows for the sanctifying work of God to take priority over our work for his kingdom. It allows us to rest. It allows us to rest so that God will refresh us with his faithfulness and refresh us with his spiritual provision. It gives space for us to set our hearts and our minds on what is most important, our union with Christ, our shared fellowship with other believers and the hope that we have in the true and lasting Sabbath rest of heaven. It helps us set our eyes on Jesus and the great promise we have in him. The same thing that's said in Hebrews chapter four, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. To rest in Christ. Rest is a gift. The divine prescription of Sabbath rest is a divine gift. Even our Lord Jesus when countering all the ridiculous laws that the Jews has added to the Sabbath observance. So afraid of they were this one. I've seen it's almost 1,400 extra laws were added to the Sabbath. 1,400. Who could keep all these? Jesus was attacked by some Pharisees, not just once, but many times. Remember, he had healed someone on the Sabbath day. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, oh, you're right. I'm not supposed to do anything today. Oh, he doesn't say, oh, there's no more Sabbath anymore. You'll never hear Jesus say that. Instead, what did he say? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Clearly, the Sabbath was not meant to be a burden, as many have, and I would argue that many still make it out to be. The Sabbath is a gift it's a call to rest, to rest in God, to rest in all that God is for us in Jesus. It's a blessed provision for weary minds and weary bodies and weary souls. The Sabbath is surely a day for the exhausted soul to catch up to the exhausted body. Even with that said, what surprises me the most is how the Sabbath remains the gift, and it is a gift, that we so often just stubbornly refuse to receive. No thanks, God. No thanks. Look, we live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. We live in light of the resurrection. 
that momentous work of redemption that caused the early believers to transform the Sabbath day to what we now call the Lord's day from the last day of the week to now the first day of the week, today, Sunday. And since the book of Acts, Christians have set aside Sunday as not only just the day of corporate worship, but also the day when believers are called to cease from their worldly labors and rest and be refreshed in the promises of the gospel. And look, I understand acts of mercy and necessity, acts of love and service to our communities, just as Jesus did on the Sabbath day, right? They're needed and they're even warranted. I'm not here to talk about that. We'd be here all morning. We'd legislate 1,400 new rules. That's not what we're here to do. But what do we do? We say, yeah, I know it's a gift. But we so often fill our Lord's day with things that at best might be considered trivial, other times selfish. Rather than order our lives around such a precious and lasting gift as Sabbath rest, rather than embracing that gift for all that God intends it to be, we stubbornly refuse it over and over again. We choose to weary our minds. We choose to weary our bodies. We choose to weary our souls with the cares and the work of the world. Some of you have your radars up now. Your antenna's like, mink, 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 mink. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. So let me say this clearly. And you can come talk to me after if you wanna talk more. I'm not promoting a works righteous legalism here. I'm not. In fact, from an outward perspective, I'm addressing a sanctuary full of people who are in part embracing Sabbath rest. But Sabbath rest is as the rest of the moral law is. It's inward, a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And God desires for us to love him as we love and observe his law. And like any other matter of faithfulness, we must see, and this is where we can fall into a trap, we must see God as the one who has already accomplished our obedience in Christ. But God is also the one that supplies and sustains that ongoing obedience in Christ as we walk in what is good. Remember, God has set his people free for freedom. God has put up the fence and says, this is where it's safe. This is where you can run if you go past that fence, you will plummet to destruction. But this is good. This is freedom. And the Sabbath is the fourth commandment of the moral law. It remains today. This is good. God wants to give you this gift. How can that be a call to legalism? Legalism would be what the Pharisees said. Unless I do this, this, and this, I won't be saved. No one's saying that. At least I'm not. We do this as we do anything else. It's a response, a response of love to a God who loved us so much that he's given us this gift. So I'm not calling you to legalism. I'm asking you a simple question. Are you joyfully accepting God's divine gift of rest? Are you joyfully accepting it? Or are you stubbornly refusing it? Pushing it aside, no thanks, God. Praise God, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But I pray that the Spirit works on your heart. 
Many of you know Charles, the name, doubt you knew him, uh, it's a long time ago, but English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he was once preaching about the priority of the Lord's day. And he told this story. He said, uh, I remember a, a friend in Newcastle telling me that when he was looking at a house to rent, the owner took him to the top of the house and said, you see that there is a really fine view from here. You can see a long way today, but on Sunday, but on Sunday, you can see so far that you can even see Durham Cathedral. Spurgeon's friend asked, why only on Sundays? The owner replied, you cannot see it the rest of the week because of the smoke from the chimney stoves. But on Sundays, as people rest, it's usually clear enough to get a glimpse of it. And it's a beautiful sight. Spurgeon went on to conclude, what views some of us have had of heaven. And what views of Jesus Christ have been accorded to us as we gather for worship and as we rest in him on the Lord's day? Spurgeon continues, we might have seen him on other days if there had not been so much smoke from our business and care and sin. But the blessed breath of heaven-inspired rest has blown it all away on the Lord's day. And we now are able to look together and rest and that which has been so specially gifted to us. So I'm not gonna meddle. I'll leave that to the Spirit to work on your heart. I just wanna remind you that you have been given both the blessing of work and the blessing of rest. My prayer is that God would work in me and you through all of us as he continues to work for us because God's at work. I want you to truly and joyfully embrace both gifts for his glory and for your good. Amen and amen.